If you are just joining us, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, which is perhaps the collection of the most famous teachings of Jesus. If you've ever heard someone say, judge not, lest you be judged, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You've not only brushed shoulders with someone who loves them some old English, but you've brushed shoulders with the Sermon on the Mount. Essentially, the Sermon on the Mount is Christianity's answer to the question, how do we flourish? And through this sermon that Jesus delivers, he gives us a picture, a very vivid picture of what he thinks life can be like in this world when we walk with him. And the vision he gives us isn't tame at all. E. Stanley Jones was a missionary. He was a theologian. He was also a writer. And of the Sermon of the Mount, he said this, it is dangerous. It challenges the whole underlying conception on which modern society is built. It would replace it by a new conception, animate it with a new motive, and turn it toward a new goal. And this is especially true of our passage this morning. This morning, Jesus addresses marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And in doing so, Jesus wants us to re-envision what marriage can and will be like in the kingdom of heaven. And what he says challenges the underlying conception of marriage in our cultural moment. He wants to animate marriage with a new motive driven by a new goal, a new vision of what marriage can be like. But everything Jesus says in this short little passage, it's very unnerving. Because over the past hundred years, Western culture's view on marriage has radically shifted, especially when it comes to divorce. You know, up until the middle of the 20th century, divorce was almost unthinkable in the Western world. But now, divorce is essentially commonplace. There's an old statistic that floats around that one in two marriages end in divorce. That's not actually that accurate anymore. It's actually about 36% of marriages end in divorce. So one in three, which is still staggering. But statistics aside, all of us are probably arm's length to the reality of divorce. Maybe your parents were divorced. Maybe family was divorced. Maybe friends have been divorced. Maybe you've been divorced. And I want to acknowledge that divorce, although sometimes necessary, is a deeply painful reality. I also want to acknowledge that in this room, some marriages are hanging on by a thread. Some are entertaining divorce. Some people in this room have been divorced. Some people are remarried. And as we press into what Christ says this morning, you might start to wonder, like, what is my place in his kingdom? And I want to remind you, as I did a couple weeks ago when we addressed adultery and lust, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No matter where you've been, no matter what your life has gone through, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. With any difficult passage, we don't want to diminish the weight of what Jesus says, but neither do we want the weight of what Jesus says to diminish us. Because this isn't Jesus' intent. He came into the world so that we can have life and life abundant. He's teaching this sermon because he wants us to know how we can flourish as people who follow him on the way. 
But Jesus also understands reality on the ground. So he's holding up this high, beautiful vision of what God intends for marriage, but he also walks with us where we are and as we are, knowing that things are falling apart in our midst. So keeping that in mind, let's open up our Bibles, if you have one, to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't own a Bible, everything's on the screen behind me, but you could also grab one of our Gray Church Bibles and take that home with you. Again, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I have three points I want to consider this morning. Marriage, hard hearts, and renewed hearts. Marriage, hard hearts, and renewed hearts. So let's begin with marriage. Uh, Once again, I want to keep us situated in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus isn't just rattling off a list of moral rules. He's not trying to give us a bunch of do's and don'ts. Rather, Jesus is trying to help us see a righteousness, that is a way of right living, that exceeds the way of living promoted by the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had a tendency to reduce God's ways down to a set of external rules you can keep. But it didn't ever address the heart for them, not all of them. So it was only a part of them that was engaged. They were putting on a front. They might look like they were doing the right stuff, but their hearts were still a mess. And in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it clear. He wants the whole of our lives, not part of our lives. He wants our hearts. He wants our innermost being, who we are, and the motivating drive for everything we do. And in this section of the sermon, Jesus has been going through a series of, you have heard it said, followed by, but I say to you. So he states a law, and then he offers a correction to the misinterpretation that has become common because of the Pharisees' teaching. And so this time, Jesus addresses the law regarding divorce and issuing a certificate of divorce. And essentially, Jesus says, in most instances, a certificate of divorce is ineffective. It doesn't undo a marriage because marriage is deeper than a legal document. And so once again, Jesus wants us to push past the externals of the law to the deeper, weightier matters of the heart. And in order for us to do this this morning, we need some context. It's helpful to know that in ancient Judaism, the practice of divorce was universally accepted. The only debate was, when is it okay to get divorced? Today, while many Christians would cite this passage and say, you know, only when sexual infidelity has occurred, in our wider culture, the more common answer would be, it's up to you. If you're unhappy or if you're unsatisfied or if your marriage is dysfunctional and no longer working, whatever reason you need to thine own self be true. So instead of divorcing, you could follow Gwyneth Peltrel and consciously uncouple. Or you can throw a divorce party now. You see, our culture has dramatically shifted from its former Judeo-Christian roots. I'm only trying to highlight that divorce has not only become more permissible, but even a cause for celebration in some quarters. If we travel back in time, if we go back to the age of Jesus, the debate around the issue actually wasn't that much different 
in Jewish circles. There were two, uh, two main schools of thought between two rabbis, Shammai and Hillel. And similar to what Jesus says, Shammai taught that divorce was only acceptable if adultery or sexual immorality occurred. That was it. However, the more popular and prevailing view was promoted by Hillel. And he argued that a man could divorce his wife for trivial matters, such as spoiling a meal or not looking the way he wants, or because he simply found someone more preferable. So Hillel was much more permissive like our current cultural moment. Whatever reason you need is reason enough. So of course the question is, when is it okay to get divorced? And we're in luck because Jesus got pulled into this very debate. Later on in uh, Matthew's gospel, in chapter 19, we read, the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Essentially, they say, Jesus, where do you land on this whole Shammai and Hillel debate? And we know this because the phrase, for any cause, was kind of shorthand for it. And so they're trying to test Jesus. They're trying to get him in a trap. But Jesus doesn't bite. And in true rabbinic fashion, he answers their question with a question. Have you not read that God who created them from beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Have you not heard this? And then Jesus lays down his view. So, they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's his view. Now, of course, this ruffled some feathers. So the Pharisees said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why is there a law permitting this as if this is what God intended? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, and just like he says in the Sermon on the Mount, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, did you notice, though, that the majority of what Jesus said in response to the Pharisees' question about the grounds for divorce isn't about the grounds for divorce? The majority of what he says is about the nature of marriage. Jesus essentially says to them, you're asking the wrong question. You've missed it. You see, we can get so preoccupied wanting to know what are some good reasons, what are the grounds for divorce, but Jesus says, have you considered what marriage is? Have you considered the nature of marriage? Jesus acknowledges, yeah, in some extreme circumstances and in tragic circumstances, divorce may be necessary, but he doubles down on his point. Most of the time, during ancient Judaism, and even today, divorce is unjustified and without grounds. And no certificate or legal proceeding can undo the marriage. That's why Jesus says, if you get remarried in these cases, it's adultery. It's adultery because the certificate doesn't have the power to undo what God has made. So if you're married and you get divorced on illegitimate grounds in the Lord's sight, and then you go and you marry someone else, you might think you're divorced, but in God's sight, you're married, and therefore you're committing adultery because you're now sleeping with someone else. That's Christ's point. 
As one scholar points out, the passage emphasizes that divorce on unbiblical grounds complicates sin rather than cures it and may implicate others in sin rather than absolve them. I think we can agree Jesus has made a very uncomfortable point. And he's disturbed the complacency and the laissez-faire attitudes around divorce in his day and even ours. In fact, what he said was so shocking to his disciples. The truth bomb he just laid down on the Pharisees was so much that they came to him and they said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, who on earth would get married if that's what marriage is? So if you think this is just Alistair promoting his conservative views on marriage, no. Because we have how the disciples reacted to Jesus. I'm simply trying my best to convey the weight of what he said and their reaction was, who should get married then? They get it. They get it. Marriage is not for the faint of heart. And given how they've responded, it's best then that we not try to lessen the weight of what Jesus has said, but rather come under the full force of what he's saying and see how it might bring about life. And so rather than focus on the grounds for divorce, because that's not what Jesus does, we're going to focus on the nature of marriage. Because any exceptions are precisely that. They're exceptions. Yes, the Torah had concessions because of hardness of heart, but it was never God's intention for a marital union to be broken. And so Jesus wants us to focus on the vision of marriage because how you define marriage will ultimately influence how you think about divorce. How you define marriage will ultimately influence how you think about divorce. And the problem back then, as it is now, is that people's vision of marriage had become too small. In the ancient world, most marriages were social contracts. They were arranged or they were set up, but the marriage was to preserve your family's prestige and wealth or to enhance your family's prestige and wealth. But the main driving cause was social. It was a social contract. But today, the pendulum has swung to the other extreme. Marriage is often about feelings. You marry someone because you feel love toward them. You enjoy them. You feel like they enrich your life and your experience, and it's good. See, we've swung the, the furthest away from the social contract entirely into personal experience and feelings. But if you see marriage in either of these ways, divorce can make sense. In the ancient world, if marriage was primarily about social contracts, social status. You might get divorced because now you can marry someone who might actually improve your social status. Of course, this was only the option for men, but believe me, the history books show they took advantage of it. Today, if your marriage isn't satisfying or if you're unhappy or if it's not working or if it's just too hard or you're just tired of it, if marriage is fundamentally about love and your experience, when that lacks, then you'll get divorced. You see, how you see marriage, why you get married, in turn influences how you think about divorce. The two are connected. And so Jesus wants us to anchor ourselves in the vision of marriage in Scripture. When Jesus responded to the Pharisees, he appealed to the creation narrative back in Genesis. You saw that. And he goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. 
And he argues that marriage is woven into the very fabric of creation itself. God made male and female. And marriage was designed by God for the two to become one. It's a part of the fabric of creation. Jesus affirms this scripture and does not deviate from it. He doesn't say, you have heard it said, and then quote this passage and say, but I say to you. He doesn't try to get to a deeper meaning of the text that we've somehow missed. He says, this is the authoritative and true text. This is the standard God has set within the created order for marriage. It is unchanging. And in doing this, Jesus is actually saying that marriage didn't just emerge as a human artifact. It is not just a cultural creation. Culture is ever-changing and dynamic. Social norms and opinions regarding marriage ebb and flow over decades and centuries. But there is a normative standard that God has created within the created order. And sometimes culture will align closely with it. Sometimes culture will deviate from it. But the standard remains. And that's what Jesus appeals to in his argument. He says, this is what marriage is. This is the definition. Therefore, any thinking on the topic, any assessment of the culture around the topic has to be assessed in light of this authoritative norm. God made male and female and marriage was designed by God for the two to become One, those are his words. But why does this make marriage so important that ideally it's unbreakable? And I think it helps to see that marriage is one of the most profound and powerful metaphors used throughout Scripture to describe God's relationship to us. Now I want to confess something to you. I promise it's not about to get weird because I know sometimes when I say that it gets weird. Before I became a priest, weddings weren't all that exciting to me. Other than my own wedding, I typically tried to find an excuse not to go. Don't worry, that was like for someone else's wedding, not yours. Uh, But then I became the person who officiates weddings, and so my perspective had to change. And I started looking at what Scripture says about weddings, and then God helped me find a moment in the wedding that I just simply love. It's when my jokes land. No, that doesn't happen, as you know. It's when the bride comes down the aisle. It's when the bride comes down the aisle. And the love in her eyes and the love in her uh, husband-to-be eyes and the way they look at each other, that's the moment that makes a wedding for me. And here's why. Isaiah prophesied, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I'm convinced some of you this morning, you need to forget everything I've said and everything I will say and take this home. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. The way the bridegroom and bride look at each other is a glimpse of how the Lord of the universe, the creator of all that is, the author and perfecter of your soul and faith, that is how God looks at you. And this wedding language is used further in Scripture still. The church throughout Scripture, you may or may not know, is called the Bride of Christ. 
That's how Jesus sees and cherishes us. He calls us his bride. The apostle John, late in life, has a vision and he wrote it down in the book of Revelation. And it's a vision of the world to come when God will create a new heavens and a new earth and do the complete makeover and do over and make all things new. And in this vision, John sees the marriage of Jesus and his bride, the lamb and his beloved. But he focuses in on the wedding banquet. You see, it turns out a wedding banquet is going to help you best envision what eternity will be like. So marriage is a symbol of God's love for us. The way that the bride looks at her bridegroom and the bridegroom looks at her bride, that gives you a picture into what God's love is like. But wedding receptions, and I'll add a caveat, at least good ones, (laughs) wedding receptions are a symbol of what God's presence is like. The ceremony is what God's love is like. The reception is what God's presence is like. The party, the celebration, the rejoicing, the lavishing of love through speeches, the dancing, the delight. It's a glimpse of what eternity will be like when Jesus finally says those words, behold, I make all things new. And he's eradicated death and suffering and tears and established an eternity rooted in God's character and love and presence. Scripture tells us God created marriage. And marriage matters because it is a symbol and sign of God's love and presence. And for this reason, Jesus says to the Pharisees, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, You may have your man-made customs and rules and regulations around marriage, but God has made the two one. That's what Jesus is saying. Marriage is unbreakable because it is a reflection of God's unbreakable faithfulness and love toward us. You see, it's this definition of marriage that will help you come to grips with some of the more difficult teachings throughout Scripture. God says in the book of Malachi, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. Let's be clear. God does not say, I hate divorced people. He does not say, I hate divorced people. He says, I hate divorce. You know who else hates divorce? Most divorced people. It's a terrible and painful process. No one's thinking, hey, I can't wait to go and get divorced. But the reason God says these words so strongly, I hate divorce, is because just as marriage is a symbol and sign of God's love and presence, divorce is a symbol and sign of all that's gone wrong in creation. It's a symbol of sin's destructive power. It's a sign of how sin can ruin and tarnish relationships, especially our relationship with God. It's the opposite of the kind of flourishing that Jesus came into the world to establish for us. See, what we have to understand is that marriage and divorce are not just social realities. They are spiritual realities as well. And when this is your vision of marriage, you can understand why there are very few legitimate grounds for divorce. Because Christian marriages should be striving with every effort to reflect the spiritual reality of marriage in their lives together. 
That's what Jesus is calling us upward toward in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't settle for a hard heart that looks for a way out in a culture where divorce was permissive and easy. He says, address the hardness of your heart. Walk with me. Allow me to transform you so that you have a marriage that flourishes. So having considered marriage, now let's move to our second point, which will be much shorter. Hard hearts. Hard hearts. We have to acknowledge this, that marriages fall apart, even Christian marriages. Because it's always two sinners saying, I do. And Jesus acknowledges this. He acknowledges that there can be legitimate reasons for divorce like sexual infidelity and illegitimate reasons. Marriages can and will end for various reasons, some legitimate, some illegitimate in God's sight. And I know we all want to ask, well, what are the other legitimate reasons? But Jesus doesn't go into a list of possibilities because there's a deeper issue that needs to be addressed. But I will say this. If you're in an emotionally or physically unsafe or abusive relationship, let someone know, let us know, and let's get you into a safe environment. But the deeper issue is this. No matter what reason is given for a divorce, it's always due to the same cause, hardness of heart. That is always the reason for divorce, hardness of heart. Sometimes it's one spouse. And there's nothing the other spouse can do. That happens. Hardness of heart. Sometimes it's both spouses. 50-50. Sometimes it's 70-20. I don't know how math adds up. But <laughs> when divorce occurs, when it happens, whatever the story may be, as complicated as it is, it will be distilled back down to this fundamental issue. A hardness of heart a heart that's become impermeable, that won't change, that won't reason, that won't accept blame, that only does what it wants, that only looks out for its own self-interests, that won't hear what someone is actually saying. A hard heart. So in our passage, Jesus is saying to men of ancient Judaism who used easy divorce as ways to significantly harm women and put them at social risk in a hyper-patriarchal society, when you issue a certificate of divorce for illegitimate reasons, you've already lost. Your heart is already hard. You've already missed the kingdom. Yes, there's a law that gives you a concession, but you failed to address the deeper issue. You have a hard heart. Because if both hearts are healthy, marriages are much less likely to fall apart. That's the point Jesus is making. If you seek after the righteousness of your, his kingdom, if you follow his ways, if you allow him to be Lord over your heart and transform your life, marriage is much less likely to fall apart. If you've ever been to a wedding I've officiated, you know essentially whatever text gets assigned to me, I preach the same homily. But it always ends with this. Your fundamental responsibility in marrying your spouse is to love Jesus more than you love your spouse. Is to love Jesus more than you love your spouse. And if both of you do that together, there may be hard times, there may be trials, there may be difficulties. 
but you'll be pursuing after the same Lord who's capable of transforming your very hearts and making you one, the same Lord who declared that you are one to begin with. So this brings us to our last point, renewed hearts, renewed hearts. I've tried to hold up this teaching from Christ unflinchingly. And I know it's a difficult teaching. But we can't allow the discomfort it causes us to move us into the mistake of diminishing the truth it conveys. But neither do we want to allow the weight of this text to diminish us. I want to remind you again that Jesus came into this world not to condemn you, but to save you, to transform you to give you a life of abundance and flourishing. He came into the world to heal our hardness of hearts, to give us new hearts, renewed hearts, so that we can walk by the power of his spirit and actually attain this vision he casts in the Sermon on the Mount. And I know his vision around marriage, rooted in Genesis, is not shared by our wider culture. And I want to remind you, in points of disagreement, we're always called to demonstrate gentleness and respect. There is never an excuse for us to take the truth and beat other people down with it with belligerence, prejudice, or condemnation. Culture at times will and won't agree with us, but what they always pay attention to is our character and our witness. So we always speak the truth, but in love. It might be weighty, but it never outweighs grace. But for those of us who believe Jesus is Lord, for those of us who believe he is casting a vision of God's ways on earth, we can actually attain this vision because we never have to go after it alone. Jesus meets us where we are and walks with us every step of the way. And I understand it's impossible for me to capture the nuance of your story, especially on a topic like this one. So if you're married or if your marriage is struggling, or if you're divorced, or you're remarried, or if you're single, if you don't agree with this vision of marriage, this passage is going to stir you in different ways that I can't possibly know. I want to acknowledge that. But I do want to say a few things quickly. If you're entertaining the idea of getting married, if you're dating and you're, you're, you're saying, should we get married? I want to encourage you to do a deep dive study into the passages on marriage and scripture. Is this your vision of marriage? And is this what you're going to put your mind, body, and soul and strength into? Are you up for it? It's attainable, but not by your own strength or character. Not even by the quality of your relationship as it is right now. This vision of marriage is only possible if you and your potential spouse Walk with Jesus and let him shape and form your marriage. That's the only way you attain this vision of marriage. If you're married, you're newly married, if you've been married a long time, is this still the vision of your marriage? Has it ever been the vision of your marriage? Does it need to become the vision of your marriage? And even if it is, I want to be clear, we don't drift into this vision of marriage by accident. Simply moving in together and sharing life together and paying bills together and raising kids together is not one and the same as this vision of marriage where two become one and you manifest the love and presence of God in your lives for a watching world. You don't drift into that by accident. 
Are you pursuing this vision of marriage together with your spouse? Are you intentionally walking in the ways of Jesus together? Are you examining your hearts together? Are you sharing your souls together? Are you crying out for the mercy and grace of the Lord together? And I want to say, if you're married and your spouse doesn't believe, whether they left the faith after you got married or whether you got married and they didn't believe, or, 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 or maybe you were both unbelievers and you became a Christian. What do you do then? I'd say you continue to pursue this vision of marriage, even if it's not shared by your spouse. That you might manifest the love and presence of God to them. Elsewhere, Paul addresses these things in detail. And if that's your case, we'd be happy to meet with and, and talk about it in more detail. If your marriage is struggling, and, and I know some are, and I want to assume that there's other marriages that are struggling that I'm unaware of. It's tempting to personalize our marriage. It's tempting to say it's no one else's business. But in doing so, we buy into the hyper-individualistic spirit of our age. Marriages never exist outside the context of community. You see, that's why in most wedding ceremonies, there's a part where all the witnesses pledge their support to uphold the marriage in good times and in bad. So don't let your friends' and family's words be empty words. You know, if you're in a short or long season of struggle, if things are looking bleak, if you're even entertaining divorce, don't face these realities alone. Don't make life-altering decisions without consulting scripture and tradition and leaders and counselors and trusted spiritual friends. You know, reach out to people you trust. Reach out to our staff. Reach out to your community group leader. And we'll walk alongside you and help you get the support and help you need. We might not provide it directly, but we'll point you in the right direction. If you're divorced, I want you to hear this again. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is the great tension of the ages. Jesus makes the truth very clear for us and shows mercy upon us and gives us grace. There's no condemnation. I want you to know that. There is no condemnation. I don't know your story. I don't. I don't know the workings of your heart. I might not even know that you've been divorced. But if your hope is to call St. Peter's home and to get remarried, or maybe your hopes to stay single, or maybe you're still holding out that maybe your marriage would be restored, I want you to know that in any of those scenarios, we have the same desire. We want to walk alongside you in the slow and necessary work of inner healing, which means acknowledging whatever part you may have had in your marriage falling apart. And you do this through a season of deep self-examination and repentance in the context of community and people who know you and who can see that you're being transformed by Christ's grace. Finally, I want to say this. If you're single... Let's not lose sight of the fact that our Lord himself was single. You are not a second-class citizen in God's kingdom if you're single. Marriage and singleness are vocations, sometimes chosen, sometimes not. 
But every single one of us, whether married or single, bears the same responsibility that in our relationships, in our friendships, we manifest and reflect the love and presence of God to a watching world. Marriages do that in a unique way, but singleness can as well. And so my point in all of this is this. Let's talk. Let's be open. Let's share in our struggles together and let's journey toward Christ as he heals and renews our hearts and makes true flourishing possible. Because marriage, rightly understood, is a symbol and sign of a deeper reality, what's really real. God loves us and rejoices over us and wants to be united with us. And his love is unfailing and unbreakable because love is what drove Christ to the cross to be crucified for our sake, to forgive our sins so that we could be reconciled to God so that our hardened hearts could be broken open and that our lives might truly start to flourish. And the good news is this, even if everything in your life falls apart, God's love remains.